If you have a Bible, would you please open up to the book of Hosea? Ah, if, you're, you, if you need a Bible, there's some down the center aisles. It's, in those Bibles, it's page 437. You can just click on your app and type in Hosea and you will find it. And let me pray for us. <clears throat> Dear Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the privilege we have now to come around it, to read it and to study it, but more importantly, to hear your voice uh, speaking to us. And although this was written some, well, nearly 3,000 years ago, Lord, we believe your word to have great power and relevance to us today. And so we pray that that would be our experience this morning, that we wouldn't just endure a sermon for 30 minutes waiting for the cake, but we would hear you speaking to us about your great love for us. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, if you've ever assembled a piece of Ikea furniture or your kids have had Lego for Christmas, you will know that they come usually, especially the Legos, with a big, thick booklet of instructions on how to put these things together. Or in Ikea, you, once you've got rid of all of the cardboard and the packaging, you find the instructions with that little weird man with the really pointy nose. Everybody seen him? And he shows you how to put this furniture together, not by written instructions, not by pages and pages of notes and descriptions of how you do it, but by showing us a picture. It's, a little, and it's like Lego, isn't it? So Devin is only five, but since he was about three, we've been buying him Legos because we like Lego in our house. And, and so he's now started to be able to put it together because he can see on the picture the bits that he needs and he knows where to clip them and how to fit them together and so that he can build these incredible things because the best instructions, the best things uh, that or the best way to help us understand something is to show us what it's like rather than just tell us. Can you imagine if you needed to put together the kind of Harry Potter Lego castle, which is like you know, massive, it would come with an instruction book thicker than your Bible, I reckon. But when you get it out of the box, it comes with an instruction book about this big because of the pictures. Because the pictures help us to understand something in a way that perhaps words fail. Now, don't misunderstand me. Words are really important. Words really matter because words are powerful. But sometimes it's images that stick in our minds. It's pictures that we remember better than words. And that's something to keep in mind this morning as we turn to an overview of the book of Hosea. Okay? As you thumb through the, the 14 chapters of Hosea, what you will see is most of it well, all of it is words. There's no pictures unless you have a, bio, a picture Bible. But most of it is words. And most of it is actually prophecy. Prophecy that this guy called Hosea spoke out uh, 800 years or so before the birth of Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that it's prophecy because in my Bible, and maybe in yours as well, it's all indented. That means it's, it's supposed to represent spoken words. And it's, it's kind of indented, so you know he's preaching this, he's speaking it out. But if you look closer, you will notice an ever so brief, different kind of format in your Bible, which reveals that in chapters 1 and in chapters 3, there is some narrative. 
a story, a picture, a few short verses, uh, uh, really a mere fraction of the book, but a picture of, that helps us understand the whole book. And this picture that we're going to look at in a few moments is powerful and beautiful. So just bear that in mind as we read through the book of Hosea, that a lot of it is prophecy, but there's a story in the beginning that actually is then going to help us understand the rest of the chapters. Now, everybody, I hope, has got a sheet on their chair, which just provides you with a little bit of background information to Hosea. Let me just draw your attention to this uh, a moment, and particularly the back page where there's a picture uh, that I put in of the Old Testament, because I think it's helpful for us, uh, because Hosea is the first Old Testament book that we've studied, just to get an idea of the history of how Hosea fits in to the Old Testament. Okay. Now, in um, in First Kings chapter eleven, uh, right through to verse uh, to chapter sixteen, uh, it's after the death of Solomon. So David has been king. Solomon has followed him as king, and then after the death of Solomon, because of uh, civil war and political strife amongst warring factions and tribes, the the kingdom of Israel split into two. It's split into a northern kingdom. And a southern kingdom. Now, the northern kingdom was 10 tribes of Israel. So remember, Jacob had 12 sons, and those 12 sons were the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, And they went under Moses, Moses brought them out of Egypt, took them to the promised land. uh, And then when they conquered the promised land that you read about in Judges and Joshua, um, they, uh, they parceled out the land, they allotted the land according to Lot, and they uh They distributed it to all of the tribes. And the ten tribes of Israel uh, got some of the the northern parts of the land. And the southern, two tribes got parts of the southern land. And so when uh, the the kingdom divided after Solomon's rule and reign, uh, because of this civil war and political turmoil, the ten tribes formed their own kingdom in the north. uh, And they called themselves Israel. Or sometimes as you read through Hosea, you'll see they refer to themselves, or Hosea refers to them rather, as Ephraim, which was the largest tribe. And Ephraim, you think, well, Jacob didn't have a son called Ephraim. No, he had a son called Joseph, who had two sons called Ephraim and Manasseh, and they had a kind of a half allotment each. Uh, It's very confusing, but you'll get it as you read along. Anyway, the northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim, often called Israel, was uh, the capital city was Samaria. So some of these things from the New Testament are familiar to us. And, and Hosea preached to the northern kingdom. Now the southern kingdom was called Judah. And that was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And they were centered in the south. And their capital city was Jerusalem. Uh, and they had different kings and different prophets preached to them. So now just let me draw your attention to this. Now this, uh, this chart tries to get the Old Testament all in one image. Uh, and you'll notice that it assumes a young earth date. I'm not making that statement necessarily here. But that's what this chart assumes. Uh, and then it, talks to, it, it shows you the, the kind of the timeline of how we progress from Genesis right through the exile to Nehemiah at the end. That's the basic chron- chronology of the Old Testament. And you'll see that there's then underneath various books, Job, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Ruth, they all fit into that, those particular timescales. But then above the chart, you'll, have, you'll notice that the prophets have been sectioned out. Now, what is confusing about the chart is that it would appear 
that if you read Hosea, he preached before Solomon was born. And as I just said, he actually preached after Solomon had died. And that's because actually the, the prophets refer mainly to this exile bit here between 583 and, um, or 586 and 536. And Daniel and Ezekiel were uh, prophets that preached during the time of exile. And then all of the prophets, uh, well, most of the prophets preceded them. They were pre-exilic prophets. Uh, and Hosea and Amos were some of the first prophets And they actually preached from about 785 onwards. So about 800 years before Jesus was born. So it's actually in this period where where second kings is marked on your chart. So do you see that? I hope hope it's helpful because I think it's useful just to see the chronology and how they all fit together. And then obviously uh, Amos and Hosea preached to the northern kingdom. There was a whole bunch, Joel, Micah, Isaiah, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, they preached to the southern kingdom. Jonah preached to foreign nations. Uh, Nahum and Obadiah preached to the foreign nations as well. And then there's post-exilic prophets, which came after the exile. And they are Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. So hopefully that will help. So what you've got to understand is that Hosea was preaching to the northern kingdom after Solomon had died, after the kingdoms had split, about 785 to about 722 when the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. So that gives you just a little window of history. Uh, Now, at the time that Hosea was prophesying, the northern kingdom was experiencing a great period of economic prosperity. They were wealthy. They were enjoying great comfort. uh, And they were sort of um, in lesion a little bit with the Assyrians of the north, which were the big superpower of the day. They were kind of a little bit of a vassal state. But there was general peace under the reign of Jeroboam II, who, although he'd brought great economic prosperity to the land, was not a good king. And he had allowed the people of Israel to worship foreign gods, to turn their back on Yahweh and to worship false gods of the surrounding nations, gods like Baal. And so as you read through Hosea, what you will find is Hosea is prophesying against the idolatry and the sin of the northern kingdom of Israel because their king was not a king like David. He had let his people worship other gods. Now Hosea is split into two main sections. Chapters 1 to 3, which are an extended real-life story of a married couple called Hosea and Gomer, and Hosea is the prophet. And then chapters 4 to 14, the second section, is the message that God gave to Hosea to preach to the Israelites. And it's full of poetic and apocalyptic language, and it's very easy to get lost. So just put here on your chart as well the structure of Hosea. So 1 to 3 is the story, which we're going to look at in a second, which will help us understand the bigger picture And then 4 to 14, God's message to Israel. And what you will notice is that it's a threefold cycle that's repeated three times. So in chapters 4 to 6, God comes through Hosea and he has accusations against Israel because of their sin. He speaks judgment over them because of their sin. And then he speaks mercy over them as his response to their sin. 
And that happens three times. So chapters 4 through 6, chapters 6 through 11, and then chapters 11 to 14. So, you're, so uh, you'll, you'll see that cycle repeated as you read through the book of Hosea. And one of the ways to tell which part you are in is through the language that Hosea uses. So, when he's, so the sections on accusations begin with, uh, I bring charges against you, or I rebuke you, or I plead with you. Uh, the, the sections about judgment begin with, blow the horn or sound the trumpet, as God declares his judgment on them because of their sin. And then the mercy sections often are characterized by keywords like, yet, or return to me, or afterwards, or I will go back and say, as God makes promises of mercy to Hosea. And so looking out for those keywords and knowing where you are will help you deal with the tricky sections from 4 to 14. Now, how best to summarize the book of Hosea? Well, a picture tells a thousand words, as we've already said. And Hosea is the story of two marriages. The marriage of Hosea the prophet himself to his wife called Gomer, which pictures and points to a greater marriage between God and his people. And the book of Hosea is all about how God loves his people in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. It's how God loves his people in spite of their unfaithfulness to him. And what I want to do this morning is to just explore the picture of the marriage of Hosea and Gomer, which points to how God loves his people despite their unfaithfulness to him. So will you read with me? We're going to read two chunks. We're going to read verses 1 to 11 of chapter 1. Then I'm just going to explain it, and then we'll read the second chapter. Uh, so we're second chunk in chapter 3. Here's the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, the king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So Hosea went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblem, and, he, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Then Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her name No Mercy. For I will have no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. And when Gomer had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore another son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. 
And yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, You are children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel. In this first scene of the story, God comes to Hosea and commands him to go and marry a woman of promiscuity and ill repute and have children with her. A strange way of doing things, perhaps, but God has a plan in mind. And so Hosea obeys God and he goes and finds this woman called Gomer, who is described in shocking terms, the wife of whoredom. And sometimes that means, some people take that to mean that she was a prostitute. And that could be the case. But actually, the word whoredom here is, is a word that means a woman who was known for her unfaithfulness. A woman who was known for her adultery. She would have been, you would have spotted her in the street and said, ah, she's one of those. She's a woman of ill repute. So it's more than just that she was a prostitute. She was a woman who had got a reputation for being unfaithful. And God says, go marry her. Can you imagine what Hosea must have thought? And then God says, and have children with Goma too. And as we read through the story, Goma gives birth to three children. Now, as you'll notice, in the first one, in, in verse 3, we're told that he is Hosea's son. But the, the children that come after this first son, children number two and number three, there's no mention of Hosea's paternity in the text, which probably implies that they were a result of some continued infidelity on her part, even after she was married to Hosea. So she has a reputation for being unfaithful, and that continues despite her marriage to Hosea. So God commands Hosea to, give, uh, to take this woman in marriage and to have children with her. And this simple story of the marriage and family of the prophet is a picture. It's a living parable. It's an extended metaphor of, uh, of what has been going on for centuries on a grander scale between Israel and Yahweh. You see, as you remember, as we've been through some of the Old Testament before, and we've talked from First uh, Peter not too long ago about how Peter calls the Christians in uh, Galatia and the, the places where he's preaching to them, he says, you're God's special people, you're, you're his chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own treasured possession. That was all terms that were given to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. God called the people of Israel his special people. They were chosen by him. They were loved by him. They had been delivered from Egypt and the bondage of slavery by him. And they had been led into the land by him. And they had been blessed by him. And yet, they too had played the part of the wife of whoredom. They had proven themselves repeatedly unfaithful to God. They had squandered his grace and his blessing they, through repeated and persistent and unrepentant sin and disobedience. They had chosen to worship the false gods of the surrounding nations instead of the true God, Yahweh, who had led them out of bondage to slavery. They had played the part of an unfaithful wife. 
Listen to some of the, the accusations that God makes to Hosea, uh, through Hosea to the people of Israel. These should come up on the screen so you don't need to turn there. But here's what he says in chapter 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. No knowledge of God in the land. They're swearing and lying and murder and stealing and committing adultery. They break all bounds. Their their sin is rampant and boundless. And there's bloodshed that follows bloodshed. Then look down with me to verse 12, or it should come up on the screen. My people inquire of pieces of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. A spirit of whoredom has led them astray. They have left their God to play the whore. They sacrifice on the tops of the mountains and they burn offerings on the hills under the oaks and poplar and terebinth because their shade is good. Then verses 18 and 19, or 17, 18 and 19. Ephraim, Israel, is joined to idols. Leave him alone. When their drink is gone, they give themselves to whoring. Their rulers dearly loved shame. So the kings and the priests, they loved sin and shame. And a wind has wrapped around them, uh, wrapped them in its wings. And they shall be ashamed because of the sacrifices and the worship and the idolatry that they were committing. There's some sordid sins described there. Sordid sins. In fact, in chapter 13, verse 2, which won't come up on the screen, Hosea summarizes the people's sins as as Israel has become a people that kill each other and kiss idols. They kill each other and they kiss idols. He doesn't use tame words to talk about the sins of the nation. He's, He's accurate and deadly in his diagnosis of the accusations of God's people. He doesn't use tame words to talk about sin and neither should we. Because sin turns us upside down and it makes us hate what God loves and it makes us love what God hates. And that's what was happening to the people of Israel. But more than just the fact that they were breaking God's laws, they were breaking God's heart. As you read through the book of Hosea, you will see that sin is extremely personal to God. It's not just the transgressing of some impersonal principles like when you break the speed limit. When the people sinned, it was like they were taking a knife and stabbing God in the back. It was like they were betraying a loving husband. In fact, such is the depth of sin and rebellion of God's people that Hosea describes that he speaks about it with the gut-wrenching image of of adultery and unfaithfulness. And you guys and I, we need to recognize that sin is not just transgressing some small principles. It's personal to God. Sin is not some insignificant minor mistake like, oops, I sinned again. That's not how God views it. God views it as betrayal. As not just breaking his law, but breaking his heart. It's a husband who has loved his wife with a love incomprehensible. And she sticks two fingers up at him and says, I'm going off after other people. 
Israel, God's bride, his precious treasured possession, turned their back on him and stabbed him in the back and said, Baal is a better God. He's a better lover. I'm going to pursue him. And what's God's response? Well, it's hinted at in chapter 1 in the story that we read through the names that Hosea is commanded to give to his children. Now, when you read these names, please don't misunderstand it. These are not what Hosea thought about his children. These are names that God told him to call them because they had symbolic significance. And as you read through, the names get more and more ominous, don't they? So the first son, Hosea's son, is called Jezreel. Now that might pass you by, but in the Old Testament, uh, Jezreel was a place of, the, of many terrible and violent acts and events in Israel's history. It was a place of significant bloodshed and death and tragedy. So when Hosea is commanded to call his first son Jezreel, it's, it would, it's a symbol pointing to the fact that God, because of the people's sins, is going to bring judgment upon them. It was a place of tragedy, a place of death. So God says, because of sin, there's going to be death. It's going to be tragic. It would be a little bit like calling your son. Imagine that you fell pregnant and you, uh, you then give birth to a son. You call him Chernobyl, all right? That's it. Or Twin Towers. Hey, this is Twin Towers. And immediately in someone's mind, it would be that horrific day on September the 11th. When those planes fell, flew into the building and killed 3,000 people. That's what Hosea had to call his son, Jezreel. Then you'll see he calls his second son, not, no mercy, or perhaps in your translation, not loved. Can you imagine walking with a sweet little girl down the road to the marketplace and someone stops you on the street and says, oh, she's so, oh, she's a cutie, look at, oh, like Olivia on the front, oh, she's so cute. She really is. You're a cutie. Hey. And then I say, oh, Tim, what's her name? He says, she's called No Mercy. She's not loved. You think, wow. It's a bit scandalous. Some people might be offended by that. Because it's a name that communicates abandonment and rejection. The God was going to have no mercy on the people anymore. They were going to be cut off and estranged from him. No mercy. Then Gomer bears a third child, another son, and Hosea is told to call him, not my people. This is perhaps the worst one. Because all the way through the book, uh, the Old Testament, through it, almost every book, there's a reference to, I will be your God and you will be my people. It's the constant refrain of the Old Testament. I will be your God, you will be my people. And here he says, oh no, you ain't going to be my people any longer. The covenant between us is, you've made it null and void. I will no longer be your God, and you will no longer be my people. It's a symbol of him rejecting and abandoning his special people. Such is the seriousness of sin. It breaks God's heart, and it brings God's judgment. Now, let's, let's just think about that for ourselves for a moment. Have we ever stopped and considered how God takes our sin personally and seriously? 
You know, when you and I, made in the image of God, and even more so, made as his children through the, the grace of Jesus Christ, when we disobey our parents, when we covet someone else's belongings, when we lie, when we lust, when we give our time and our energy to the false gods of our day and age, we're not just breaking God's law, we are breaking his heart. We are committing acts of spiritual adultery. And that's the, one of the messages that Hosea wants us to be clear about. Sin is a big problem. And it brings big consequences. Now, sometimes in the last 17 or 18 years of the life of this church, I, I've heard numerous complaints from various sources about the fact that Grace Church just seems to be a little bit sin-heavy, and it seems to be a little bit... Sometimes we focus on sin too much. Well, if you read Hosea, you'll realize, I think, that we don't focus on it enough. We don't think about it accurately enough because it's a big problem. But the reason we think about sin is because of the words of Charles Spurgeon that should come up on the screen now. He says this, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of their Savior. Only he who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned with the rope about his neck, so ready to be executed, is the man who weeps for joy when he is pardoned. To hate the evil which he has been forgiven him and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Hosea wants us to think deeply about sin because then it will help us to think deeply about the solution. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan in the 1600s, once said this as well. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. The more bitterness we taste in sin the more sweetness we shall taste in Christ. And that's where Hosea is leading us. You see, Hosea's marriage and family life was not just, uh, did not just end in doom and gloom, but it, was, it pointed to something else. Because mixed into all of the judgments and the accusations that God makes about the people's sins, he lays out hope. He lays out a solution that there is a way back Look with me at chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, because God comes again to Hosea and speaks to him these, these words. The Lord said to me, go again, Hosea, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love the cakes of raisins. And then Hosea says, So I went and I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a leche of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in the fear to the Lord, in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. 
You see, mixed in with the judgment is mercy. Hosea is commanded by, Goma to, uh, by, by God to go to Goma again and to take her back to be his wife. He's to go and pay whatever it costs to free her. And it seems that she had slipped to such a desperate state that she was in slavery. He has to go and pay for her, for her freedom, to set her free. He's got to redeem her and buy her back. And it costs him. It costs him 15 shekels of silver and half a ton of barley. That's not easy to get hold of, is it? Imagine going to Sainsbury's. Can I have a half a ton of barley, please? Why? Because I've got to go and set my wife free from the slavery and bondage that she's fallen into because of her sin. Goma was entirely unfaithful. She was a woman whose, whose reputation preceded her and whose reputation was, uh, was vindicated in her actions. She, she had sinned grievously against, Go, uh, against Hosea and she no longer had any claim to, to be his wife. She could no longer, she no longer had any rights. In fact, he calls her, doesn't he? Go again and love this woman. She's not... She doesn't deserve to be called your wife because of her actions. She'd utterly forsaken Hosea and been unfaithful to him. Imagine his surprise when God says, go and get her again. He could have divorced her. He could have walked away, but he does not desert her. Instead, he goes at great personal cost to himself to love her, to buy her back, to redeem her, and to restore her. Look at verse 3. It's a call to repentance and marriage renewal and complete restoration. You'll stop what you're doing and we shall be one again. And then God calls Hosea not only just to demonstrate an image Repentance and restoration and forgiveness and, and, and life, new life. He, go, he then goes and calls him to go to the entire people of Israel and proclaim repentance and proclaim mercy and proclaim restoration is available. So look with me at verses 6, 1 to 3. It'll come up on the screen. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, he's broken us, that he may heal us. He struck us down that he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. It gives you a little third day. There's a hint that we may live before him. Come, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He is at, he, his going out is as sure as the dawn. And he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. It's a promise of restoration. It's a promise of mercy. Look at 14 verses 1 and 2. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity and sin. But take with you words and return to the Lord. Go and repent. Say to him, take away all our iniquity. Accept what is good. We'll pay our, our, our debts with bulls and the vows of our lips. Because they were still under the sacrificial system. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will say no more. Our God to the work of our hands. We'll give up our idolatry. In you the orphan finds mercy. Then in verse 9, right at the end, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right 
but the transgressors stumble in them. Mixed in with the judgment is mercy. Through the darkness of Hosea, there's always the light of faithfulness and repentance and mercy through God's grace. Now, the people of Israel suffered judgment. They didn't heed God's calls to repent. They refused to do what he said. And so God brought the Assyrians to plunder them and to conquer them and to trample upon them and to destroy them in 722 BC. But his promises and offer of hope do not lay dormant forever. They do not hang left like hang in abstraction without fulfillment. Because as we stand this side of the cross, we can look back to this story and make another comparison. Not only to Homer, Homer, <laughs> good Lord, no Simpsons here. Uh, not only to Hosea and Gomer, Hosea and Gomer point to God and Israel. They point to Christ and his church. And when we look at the story of Hosea and Gomer, we see ourselves in the story as Gomer. You see, we have done it our way. We've wanted to do our own thing. We are spiritual adulterers who have rejected God and spurned his love and given ourselves to one night stands with idols. We've been unfaithful. And we deserve judgment. And yet in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God comes to restore his wayward people. Hosea and Gomer is a picture of Christ and his love for the church. That even today, even as Christians, we squander his grace by sin. And yet for every again of sin, there is an again of God's grace. Jesus Christ, the God-man, perfectly lived and faithfully obeyed his father. And then lovingly and specifically and sacrificially pursued each one of us in our adultery and unfaithfulness to him. To the point of having nails driven through his hands and his feet. By the very people that he came to save. And just as Hosea was told to stay and fight for his marriage and lie next to his adulterous wife in bed at night, so Jesus Christ, who could have turned his back on you and me, went to the cross and bore the sin that we had committed and the wrath and judgment that we deserved to buy his people back. And redeem us and restore us. He laid down his very life to save us. You see, the story of Hosea and Gomer not only points to what had been going on in Israel's history for hundreds of years on a grand scale of their spiritual adultery and unfaithfulness. It also pointed forward to what, was God, what God was going to do on a grander scale in sending Christ to save you and me. Hosea is a breathtaking picture of the love of God for sinful people like us. And as you read through it, it will remind you of the gospel. God's unmerited, undeserved 
logic-shattering favor towards sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that Jesus has come as the greater Hosea to rescue us from our unfaithfulness and sin and spiritual adultery against you. And though we deserved judgment, though we deserved to be called not loved and not, no mercy and not my people, you have now said to us, we are your people. We are loved. We have received mercy. All because of Jesus Christ. Lord, make our hearts grateful as we read through this book. As we see the picture and the image of your love for us.